You know, Jay, it's always a little weird when the Punisher interacts with the rest of the Marvel Universe. Right? He exists at perpetual odds with so many of its central ideals. Uh, Yeah, that, and also he's just a regular human. I mean, you'd think someone would have taken him out by now. Oh, Dokken did. Cut him up into pieces and everything. So the Punisher's gone? Miles, don't be ridiculous. Well, you're not telling me he survived that. Oh, lord no. He definitely died. He just then got patchworked back together cinematic Frankenstein style by Morbius and the Legion of Monsters. I mean, sure. Why not? To fight an army of samurai led by a severed head in a robot suit. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 374 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an episode that's a little different than standard. So we're recording this episode on May 25th, and as you might have picked up from, from last issues next time, we're looking at a Punisher story. And we have very mixed feelings about covering it today under under current circumstances. We've talked about it and we've decided we're, we're going to go ahead and, and we're going to go ahead with it. But if you don't feel like listening to a story that involves gun violence right now, we absolutely get it. And we'll see you next week. For those of you who are sticking around, I don't know, Jay, maybe we should start by talking about the Punisher. After all, this is not a character we tend to cover. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think giving some more context to why we have really mixed feelings about covering Punisher stories on this show, and especially doing that right now. Although this is this is a weirdly, like, low-gun Punisher story, as, as Punisher stories go. It very much is, yeah. It's, it's a superhero story with tons and tons of X-Men elements, and while it is still the Punisher, and there are still guns, and there is still killing— it certainly doesn't feel like the grim murder fest that I would expect from a Punisher story. To be fair, I haven't read very many Punisher stories. My discomfort with the Punisher has some to do with his representation in comics and in context, but much more with what he's been co-opted into a symbol of in the real world. Yeah, that's entirely fair. His logo is something that I at this point associate with killer cops and white supremacists, which is really fucked up, and in some ways, I I think, counter to the intent of the character in a lot of the ways that he's actually written, but at the same time, when a symbol has been co-opted to that extent, I don't know to what extent it, it can be recovered in a fictional context. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know uh, Jerry Conway, one of the creators of The Punisher, um, has been very, very vocal in saying, like, no, 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 you should not identify with The Punisher, and if you do, you're doing it wrong. And has basically said, hey, uh, queer groups, trans groups, other progressive causes, like, use this, claim this symbol. And I know that Marvel, in a recent story, has actually changed the Punisher's logo. Uh, it's still a skull, but it's now a very, very different style of skull based on the current plotline. That feels very too little too late for me, because the other one is still just, like, they should have been C&Ding those uses of the original one for a long time, and they should still be. Uh, yeah, I mean, we know that Marvel in general and Disney in particular are certainly quite litigious. Well, and we know they've see, they've seen indeed uses of the logo in in contexts, for instance, where it had the trans flag printed over it. Mm, yeah, that is a bit of a double standard. It's true. Mm-hmm. But the Punisher has been part of the Marvel universe for a very long time. He debuted as a Spider-Man villain ages and ages ago. Became very popular. Got a miniseries. Got a number of ongoing series. Been around for a very long time. And sometimes he intersects with the X-Men. So, Jay, who is Frank Punisher? Frank Punisher, otherwise known as Frank Castle, but we feel strongly that he ought to be called Frank Punisher whenever possible. Uh, Credit to, I don't remember who, but someone on Tumblr who who I saw deploy that usage once and it just stuck in my head forever. Good job, person. I I can't think of him as anything else now. Hopefully it will be contagious. Frank Punisher was a former Marine whose family was killed in the crossfire of a mob hit. How targeted that mob hit was varies, and I gather, actually, that his backstory has been somewhat rewritten in the most recent series, but I don't know anything about that, and it wasn't out when the comics we're looking at today came out, so I'm going to just pretend that I haven't heard anything about that. Anyway, 
After his family was killed, Frank Punisher did what anyone would do, named himself the Punisher, um, put on a spandex outfit with a big skull on the chest, grabbed an obscene volume of firearms, and decided to kill basically the entirety of the criminal underworld. We should make it clear at this point once again that Frank Punisher is most definitely not a role model. Yeah, there's a reason he started as a villain, and even at his most heroic, he is decidedly in the category of, of anti-hero. Speaking of, who else is in this story, Jay? Right, in this story, Frank Castle teams up with the Executioner. One of several individuals to use the title Executioner, this one specifically being Carl the Executioner. Yes, he is a techno-vigilante who has taken it upon himself to execute mutants who have killed, and to do so, he uses a bunch of alien and supervillain and weird technology gear that he found in the FBI offices. He is a friend of the apparently deceased Fred Duncan, the X-Men's old FBI contact. In fact, it's specifically from Duncan's collection of, like, cool stuff left over from X-Battles that, that Carl has now out outfitted himself. Do they just let you do that in the FBI? Like, you can just take awesome souvenirs and set them up like action figures in your office? I don't know, man. My understanding is that law enforcement, much like Canada, works somewhat differently in the Marvel Universe. That may be true. But anyway, Carl dresses himself in a bunch of this stuff, which makes him look kind of like a big armored bird guy with too many pouches. So, recently... Frank Punisher got brainwashed, and he killed Nick Fury, the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's the Marvel Universe group of pseudo-government special agents, super agents. They, they don't have superpowers, usually, but they have, like, all the tech. And so many pouches. So as a result of this, Frank owes S.H.I.E.L.D. a favor, which in the wake of Onslaught's attack on New York and the apparent death of most non-mutant superheroes, they are now calling in. So, I remember, we covered actually the issue of Punisher that came before this storyline, that was issue number 11, that was a an indirect tie-in to Onslaught, where Frank was helping S.H.I.E.L.D. with the chaos in New York around Onslaught's attack. Didn't the helicarrier crash? Uh, yes, for the first and only time in Marvel Universe history. This is a five-issue storyline spinning a little bit out of that. It is massive, a lot happens— and it mostly has the same creative team. So the entire series is written by John Ostrander. Most of it is penciled by Tom Lyle, inked by Robert Jones. All of it is colored by Matt Webb, and all of it is lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Kalia Fuchs. The exception is number 13, which instead has Derek Robertson on pencils, Jeff Albrecht on inks, Matt Webb, and Joe Andriani on colors. So we're just going to cover this as one big story because... It basically is. And it opens, in issue number 12, in Medius Frank. War Journal 2, Entry 31. I had always looked to Lincoln for inspiration, selflessness, dedication to an ideal. First time I had ever looked to him for actual protection. Because Frank is perched on Abraham Lincoln's shoulder in the Lincoln Memorial like some kind of murder parrot taking cover from a nearby mutant attacker— and this is Deadeye, who... Jay, did he just look like a, a sort of bargain basement cyclops to you? Like, he's got the blue bodysuit, the yellow shiny accents and armor, he's got a visor with a red lens, but, like, only over one eye? Oh, yeah, he is absolutely the Robert Cop to Cyclops' Robocop. Very much. And after shweeing two nearby park police officers into charred corpses, we learn a couple important plot points. Right, so after Deadeye kills Frank, he's gonna go after someone named Conover... And he claims to be a member of the New Mutant Liberation Front. Not the New Mutant Liberation Front, but the New Mutant Liberation Front. Mm, important disambiguation, given the history of the Mutant Liberation Front. Speaking of, what's their deal again? Mutant terrorist group. Yeah, basically, they were initially led by Strife, then they were led by Rainfire, now they're just sort of doing their own thing. Uh, we then flash back and learn some context. So Frank is here on a favor to S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, because again, when you get brainwashed and kill their leader, apparently you just get you, you just give them a big IOU and and get a get out of jail free card. You have to write an apology note too. You have to sign it with a heart. I think he still dots his A with a heart. It's like an umlaut over a metal band name. Also, we learned that the aforementioned Conover is William Conover. You remember that guy, right? Holy shit! Right, you remember him? Uh, we last saw him in what? God, X Men Day of Wrath. 
Uh, yeah, that was where his wife was a brood queen, because she'd been infected way back in Uncanny X-Men 233 and 234. Fun fact, she is still, to this day, in the X-Mansion's basement, cryogenically frozen. Assuming she didn't get blown up one of the many times the mansion did. As for William Conover himself, he is a minister. And in the Marvel Universe in general, and the X-Men Universe in particular, religious leaders don't always uh, do too well for themselves. The main one we know about in X-Men, of course, is Reverend William Stryker, who is an awful, awful bigot. Yeah, he tried to kill Shadowcat and get Charles Xavier to kill all of the mutants, and then he got turned into a cyborg, and then he was undead, and then he went to hell, and then he came back from hell and was a cyborg. Stryker's a mess. Oh, he totally is, especially these days. But William Conover is the anti-William Stryker. Williams, huh? Conover is just a really, really good guy. He's very religious. His whole job is being religious and preaching, but he is all about tolerance and open-mindedness and kindness and compassion and thoughtfulness. And human mutant equality. Right. And in the times we've seen him, he has really never done anything bad at all. He is a paragon of virtue. And like, not in a we-hate-this-guy-he's-annoying kind of way, but like in a I-wish-this-were-a-real-person. Now, this, it turns out, is why the MLF has declared its intent to kill him. They don't want peaceful coexistence, so they have declared that they are going to take him down. And thus, Frank Punisher is sent to bodyguard him, because GW Bridge, who's heading S.H.I.E.L.D., doesn't really have a lot of people to spare, but doesn't want to see anti-mutant sentiment elevate any further. After the whole onslaught thing, where it looked like mutants were responsible for all of the human heroes dying. So, Conover is in D.C. testifying before Congress on, on human-mutant relations. And there, we meet another one of his bodyguards, Carl Denty, FBI. Otherwise known as Carl the Executioner. So, we've seen the Executioner a couple times. Miles, Miles, he's not the Executioner. He's the Executioner. Oh, good point. Thanks, Jay. We've seen the Executioner a couple of times. He's always been an antagonist to the X-Men, if not necessarily exactly a villain. Like, he fights bad guys. He just kills them instead of, say, capturing them or knocking them out or whatever. And our heroic X-teams tend not to like that. Yeah, I would argue that that makes him a bad guy. I mean, I think that's an entirely reasonable read. That's just not always how he's been exactly portrayed. Due process is a human right. It, it's a really good idea. I recommend it, that due process thing. What we haven't seen before is who he is under the armor. Like, we know he's just a guy who works for the FBI, but we've never seen him. And here we do. And he's just this middle-aged dude with a big mustache and glasses and a flat top with graying temples wearing a black suit with a hot pink shirt and matching pocket square. And immediately upon seeing this guy, I was charmed. He looks a little like off-brand J. Jonah Jameson. He kind of does, and that's the thing. Like, he just comes off as kind of a bit of a bumbling, well-intentioned goof. Not that he's incompetent. Like, he's pretty good at being the executioner overall, and he seems to be a pretty good FBI agent, but he just looks like such a normal schlub compared to all of these superheroes around him, and that I just am made gleeful by this. The third member of Team Conover's bodyguards is the only actual agent S.H.I.E.L.D. could spare, Agent Kimberly Taylor. Kimberly is spelled with two Ys, just in case you had forgotten this was the 90s. And speaking of the 90s, her S.H.I.E.L.D. uniform? Mwah. She's in a black and white tight bodysuit. She's got one of those head-stocking things like Gambit has. She's got these buccaneer gloves and boots with the big folded-over edges. She is just absolutely covered in pouches and straps and gun holter holsters. She is prepared for any skateboards and or neon she may encounter. And she recognizes Carl as an FBI agent by his shoes. I assume he recognizes her as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent by any one of the, like, 12 different improbable aspects of her appearance? Seems plausible. Our protagonists do not have long to get to know each other because suddenly Conover is attacked. Deadeye, who we saw before, well, uh, technically after this, but before in the issue, teleports in and uh, is just kind of like a big murdery toddler saying things like, Your species is so dumb it deserves to be replaced. And... Mutants rule! 
Hey, hey, Deadeye, I think we should remember that it is Cruel who rules, specifically. Anyway, Agent Taylor and Carl Denty squabble over jurisdiction, and Taylor, who was Nick Fury's protege before Nick Fury's death, is, like, still super angry at the Punisher. These are our heroes. But they do at least all team up and manage to rescue Conover from Deadeye. Or at least draw Deadeye away. Right, um, and we're back to where we started as Deadeye blows up the Lincoln Memorial and chases Frank Punisher until Carl Denty slips away while grumbling about secret identities and comes back as the executioner to blow a hole in Deadeye's chest. This is going to come up so many times. Like, Carl Denty is the executioner, obviously, that is not a secret to any of us, but he's really, really bad at, I don't know, finding a phone booth to change his outfit uh, in. Like, he doesn't seem to have a plan for this, and... They keep getting randomly attacked, and he keeps realizing, aw, crap, now I need to, like, make an excuse and disappear so I can put on my big metal pouchy bird armor. Yeah, the fact that he gets away with this for multiple issues is astonishing. To his credit, or I guess to Tom Lyle's credit, Executioner looks awesome in this story. He doesn't always. I mean, sometimes he looks more like a low-to-mid-level World of Warcraft character, like an ultra-colorful, randomly-dressed clown— But with this, it works. It's cohesive. It clearly is a costume made from pieces gathered from different sources, but it still looks like something that fits together. It looks like something that would be a reasonable suit to run around and have fights in, at least in a superhero comic. The limited palette helps a lot. You mentioned sort of the the low-level World of Warcraft's um, motley that you see, and this... This is, is is much more streamlined chromatically, and I think that brings together the disparate elements very, very nicely. I also like the art's take on his helmet in this. We've seen before that he has sort of a hood that has a bit of a, a beak almost to it. It's a Plague Doctor mask. Yeah, and in this issue, it looks less like even that and more just like a great big bird skull. He actually reminds me a lot of uh, the way Khonshu looks in the Moon Knight show. Hmm. Well, after this rescue, the executioner teleports back to his base in a forgotten sub-basement of the FBI's headquarters. I mean, it must be pretty damn forgotten. You'd think, like, at least a couple of FBI interns would have found this place to smoke a joint or have a quickie or something. I mean, clearly one did, and then he grew up and became Carl the Executioner. Do you think that whoever he slipped down here to have a quickie with, he just swore to secrecy? Or do you think part of why he's so angry is that they were taken out by an evil mutant? Not all interns get job offers, Miles. Yeah, maybe they're just, like, flipping burgers or selling insurance or something these days. They occasionally think back to that passionate five minutes in an FBI sub-basement with Carl. In the present, however, Carl changes into his civilian clothing, and I really dig that the suit is shown as just this massive, muscly exoskeleton, almost like one of those muscle suits from a Halloween costume— He's just a normal-sized, normal-looking guy underneath. Well, okay, normal-sized for a 90s character because— So huge. So he's still, like, super muscly, but not nearly as muscly as he is when he's the executioner in that armor. Once again, he just remains endearing. It's just—it's just, you know, it's Carl. The executioner's costume raises a lot of the same questions for me that Nightman's does, in that if a law enforcement agency just has this shit sitting around, why are they not using it? I know, right? I mean, if nothing else, I would at least try it on. Like, it's pretty cool looking. Just wear it around the office? Yeah, you know, you could have, uh, it's like Hawaiian shirt Fridays, but instead it's leftover supervillain costume component Fridays. Sure. You'd probably accidentally blow a hole in the wall, or in your coworkers. But, like, you would expect this stuff to be either locked up, in use, or taken away to be reverse engineered. Yeah, well, and you get the impression that Fred Duncan sort of played his cards close to his chest when it came to the FBI, like he didn't tell the FBI everything about mutants because he was an ally to the X-Men. And so I guess it kind of makes sense that only his best friend, Carl Denty, would know about it, and so when Duncan died, it was just Carl. Which then raises a whole other set of questions, like where he was keeping all of this stuff that the FBI never noticed he had, like, a full exoskeleton. Mm, forgotten sub-basement deeply forgotten he's also his his weapon is also basically a big um, american gladiators q-tip but it it fires energy beams those are called pigils i think that's very silly 
I uh, went to elementary school with a guy that swore that his uncle had programmed the American Gladiators Nintendo game. I don't know that that was true. Is that really the kind of thing you lie about, though? Like, I feel like if he'd wanted to come up with a, 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 a you know, fancy brag, he could have gone a lot higher. I don't know. We all used to like the American Gladiators Nintendo game. Anyway, the FBI tries to autopsy Deadeye at Carl's request. It was kind of weird, because Deadeye didn't show up on the Executioner's mutant scanning device. But alas, a new member of the new MLF, Blast Furnace, who looks a whole lot like a fire-themed Mega Man boss. Like, he's got, uh, these grates in his belly, like he's a pot-bellied stove and there's fire behind it and fire comes out of his head. Like, I feel like Mega Man's gonna kill him and get, like, the stove burst or something. Yeah, yeah, he really, really does have that look. Well, anyway, he incinerates Deadeye's body. Uh, and kills a lot of the people who are there, saying that the humans will never have access to the honored dead of the MLF, or something along those lines. And the next day, there is just so much suspicion and mistrust. Like, our heroes didn't really like each other much to begin with, but now the Punisher angrily accuses his two allies of working with the MLF. Agent Taylor yells at Frank about how the Executioner has his style murdering everyone in sight, and they can't be trusted. And Carl, who is... Just terrific at keeping secrets, pipes up. Uh, actually, the Executioner's teleport device is completely different from the Mutant Liberation Fronts. And then he just changes the subject. When Frank and Taylor raised their eyebrows. Oh, Carl, you big goof, you almost biffed it. In the meantime, Conover's still gonna Conover. He's still, like, a minister that is doing good things all the time. So to bodyguard him, Frank has to accompany him to a soup kitchen, where they talk religion and about how Frank actually knows the Bible really, really well, but, you know, given what he's been through, lost his faith along the way. Well, even before that, he was a seminary student. You know, I didn't actually know that about Frank Punisher. Yeah, they, they mention it in the story. I was too distracted by Carl's mustache. That's reasonable. It's quite a mustache. I mean, it's pretty good. It's very full. But there's no time to talk religion because yet another new MLF member... Corpus Derelicti, who's a corpse held together by, like, circuitry wires and uh, is wearing the most perfect disguise ever, which is, of course, a trench coat and fedora, uh, he infiltrates the place and attacks, and there's a big fight. And Carl is very disappointed that there's no good way for him to sneak out and change into his executioner outfit. Uh, this secret identity business burns my butt. I wonder how Spider-Man deals with it. Thankfully, Frank Punisher is on the case. Yo, laughing boy, over here. Anybody tell you the Grateful Dead disbanded? Let me do the same by you. I appreciate that the Punisher's jokes all have the punchline, and now I will kill you. Yeah, that's not a good punchline. He seems to like it. He keeps coming back to it. You should always be your own best audience. They do finally beat Corpus Derelicti by just breaking his body in various ways, and sure enough, Fireman, I mean... Blast Furnace, teleports in to incinerate him. At which point we suddenly switch to a new artistic team because it's the third issue. Derek Robertson pencils this and only this issue. And Tom Lyle, I think, is a great artist for this era. Very good artist for Punisher. Derek Robertson is totally different and so much fun. Yeah, he's he's got a very, very expressive kind of cartoony style compared to Lyle's. And... It serves this story very well, and it also takes an edge of seriousness away from the Punisher, which I think is always a plus. Oh yeah, Frank's, like, exaggerated grimaces and scowls and yowls are just so much fun in this issue. So, the evil robot master, I mean, Blast Furnace, is just burning down everything in sight, including a nearby fire truck, from which Castle blasts Blast Furnace with tons of water, and since the steam can't escape, Blast Furnace explodes. And just as he's about to do this, Frank says, Fire and water. Time to find out which is stronger. Or uh, alternately, to paraphrase Robert Frost's review of this comic, some say the world will end in Blast Furnace's fire. Some say in a fire truck's water. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor Blast Furnace's fire. But if there were a second slaughter, I think I know enough of hate— to say that for destruction, a fire truck's water is also great and would do what it oughter. And with that, it's time for clues. 
Punisher notes that Denti is injured, and wait a minute, the Executioner was also injured in the same way in the fight. Also, both Denti and Taylor sneakily grab bits of Blast Furnace's armor for analysis. Actually, no, Taylor is all secretive about it. Um, Denti just basically sends the lot to the FBI. Uh, yeah, Denti, whether he's good, neutral, or evil, is definitely lawful. So Conover is undeterred by all of these assassination attempts, so the point that I was kind of wondering by this point whether he was in on them? Uh, yeah, and in fact, I think the heroes at one point ask about that among themselves when Conover is doing something else, because, like, clearly the new MLF has some way of gathering information on where Conover's gonna be, and where the defenses are going to be weakest. Like, they just keep coming after him in, initially at least, effective ways. Yeah, I really thought it was going to be either him or Kimberly with two wise Taylor. Yeah, yeah, because when she takes that bit of Blast Furnace's armor away, she's looking super sneaky about it and then lies about it. Well, and because S.H.I.E.L.D. had said they could only spare one person and that person was going to be Frank, and then this other agent shows up. Well, I thought they meant they could only spare one actual pouched S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, and Frank was just there, like, to help that agent. I see. Okay, I, I interpreted that differently, but but your read may have may have been the same. I, I thought I thought that between that and the the bit with Blast Furnace's armor, they were they were setting um, Kimberly with two eyes up as a traitor, but they weren't. Nope. So Conover continues uh, back to Oklahoma to be with his congregation, and Frank says, "You know what? Planes aren't safe, and in Resident Evil, helicopters aren't safe. So it's time for an FBI train. Yes, the FBI has trains." Sure, why not? They discuss their various suspicions, and Frank and Conover once again talk religion a little bit. Frank talks about how he only really finds peace in battle. Everything else in the world is chaos, but it feels like even through the peace of that violence, nothing ever helps. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Nothing he does makes a dent. You're so close to a useful revelation there, Frank. So close. And Conover gently tries to guide Frank in that direction to say, hey, maybe there's another path to justice other than killing. Maybe you could find that peace if you just stopped and thought about other ways you could try to make the world better. And he's just being so kind and slow and gentle and understanding with Frank. Like, once again, William Conover is a person with only good qualities, including being so good at conveying those good qualities that he's not annoying. He's just nice, and he makes me happy when I read things about him, and I don't even really like religion that much. Well, oh. unfortunately for for both Conover and Frank Punisher, their conversation is cut short by the arrival of yet another member of the MLF. So this is a speedster. Burnouts on your butt 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 fumes! Die, 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 and time is here! I love the way she talks. It's so much fun. I have a question. Is the new MLF the first group that we've seen that refers to humans as Humes? You know, I was thinking about that as well, because it's usually something like flat scans. Yeah. I don't know that we've seen Humes before. I would say that could be a clue as to the nature of the new MLF, but I'm not sure that it's really that deep. And it's also worth noting that once again, this MLF member, and likewise Burnout before, didn't show up on Carl's little mutant detector. Uh-huh. Where she does show up amazingly is on the page, though. I love the way Derek Robertson draws her, with just her way-too-wide eyes and her, like, rictus maniacal grin. He is so good at drawing people with intense facial expressions, and her facial expressions are intense all the time. Frank tries to shoot her, but her super speed is more than a match for him, so Kimberly with two Ys does what any reasonable S.H.I.E.L.D. agent does, jump on her motorcycle, throw Conover in the sidecar, and take off. I don't know why, but sidecars are just always hilarious to me. Like, they just look so silly, and anybody in them always looks so silly. Although I do wish Conover had goggles. I feel like you should have goggles if you're in a sidecar. I feel like you should have goggles and also be an English bulldog. You know, Conover's really likable, and if he were an English bulldog, I think he would be even more likable. That would be optimal sidecar use. Okay, uh, well, if this storyline is ever remade, if there's ever, like, a director's cut, just change that. Everything else is fine. Burnout does indeed chase the bike and its sidecar with the English bulldog preacher in it. And Deadeye, who, wait a minute, Deadeye should be dead and incinerated. Anyway, 
Deadeye teleports in to drop a bundle of dynamite on the train tracks ahead of the FBI train like he's fucking snidely whiplash. I love just how villainous he is. It's worth noting that Burnout has at this point killed the people driving the train. Oh, yeah, it's actually pretty brutal. It's uh, rough. Like, Burnout's super evil and, and, and she should not be allowed to do things. She's wrecked the controls as well, so there's no way to stop it. Frank and Carl dive out of the crashing train, and Frank lands in the river. Carl, who mentions that he can't swim, thus endearing himself to me even more for some reason, teleports away. Are you allowed to be an FBI field agent if you can't swim? I feel like that might be a prerequisite. That is surprising, but I think the FBI brass were just like, oh, but but it's Carl. Oh, it's fine. You're fine, Carl. Just Just wear that mustache every day. Burnout catches up with the bike, of course, and she teleports away with Conover just before the executioner shows up, since obviously he had to go off, change into his costume, and teleport back. You have teleportation technology, but it still takes you, like, a long time to get into your giant bulky armor. I feel like there's gotta be somebody the X-Men fought at some point who had, like, a quicker way of getting dressed. No. No. If there's anything that the X-Men villains have in common, it's the great pride they take in their appearance. Oh, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's true. Look at Lucifer. That guy was sharp. So, meanwhile, at an FBI lab in D.C., Blast Furnace's remains are being studied when Blast Furnace shows up. And incinerates them. Yeah, that's, that's weird. Maybe it's, like, Blast Furnace for Mega Man 2 and then Blast Furnace for Mega Man 3, who looks a little different. But no, like, exactly the same. And shortly thereafter, Frank Punisher confronts Carl about the fact that he's really obviously the executioner. And Carl's fine with this. Carl is excited to be recognized. We're on the same side, Castle. More than you know. I got the files and the equipment from a fellow FBI man now dead. Fred Duncan. I pieced together the executioner identity from the equipment Duncan had salvaged from battles the X-Men fought over the years. But I got my inspiration from you. I wish two things here. The first is that Executioner sucked more in this series, so that we could see the irony in the speech. Second, I really wish, I really thought that Frank was going to go off at him after that. But no, he's just like, cool, we're buds now. Yeah, and Carl explains that if mutants won't police their own, then it's up to somebody else, and that somebody else might as well be him. And that's interesting, Mutants do police their own. It's just that, like every single other goddamn supervillain in the Marvel Universe, they regularly escape. And police, in this case, means summarily execute. Like, let's be clear, this is not about arresting. This is not about, you know, putting through the the correct legal processes. Yeah, exactly. Like, the executioner very specifically kills mutants who have killed— It makes me a little sad that I don't think the Executioner ever really had a conversation with either of the Bishop siblings, Lucas or Shard, because that was kind of their deal in the future that they came from. They were a mutant police force that policed evil mutant actions and were not afraid to kill if that seemed appropriate to them at the time. Like, Bishop learning to not just kill bad guys was a big character uh, element of his move to the present when he first showed up. Like... This seems like a natural pairing of characters. I guess the Executioner was really not too many people's favorites, aside from ours. Uh, well, yours. Um. Well, okay. But, you know, that also raises the question of why he's specifically targeting mutants when there are plenty of other superpowered villains who kill. I believe it's mentioned early on, maybe even in his first appearance. Remember, he first appeared in that series of annuals one year where every annual introduced a new character. The Excalibur Annual introduced that guy's D&D character. But in Carl's first appearance, I think he mentioned that his best friend, Fred Duncan, who used to work with the X-Men, was killed by an evil mutant. I don't know that we ever found out any details about that, which seems weird since Fred Duncan was kind of a big deal. But I think that's Carl's motivation. Yeah, I think Carl was looking for an excuse. Well, that may be true, yeah. Well, they don't really debate ethics too much, since they both agree that, yep, if people are bad, you should just kill them. So they come up with a plan. 
They're going to smoke out the fake MLF by having Denty go on TV and say he can prove the mutants weren't involved in Conover's disappearance. And as it turns out, this actually, you know, they're, they're correct. Um, because we get our first glimpse at the MLF's home base, where they are led by none other than Simon Trask. Simon Trask? He's the worst Trask. I want to note here that Autocorrect feels strongly that his name should be Simon Trash, and I don't entirely disagree. <laughs> right. So, Simon Trask is the brother of Bolivar Trask, the guy who created the Sentinels. And I guess the uncle of Larry Trask, who did some Sentinel stuff on his own and also had a big disco medallion that made him not remember that he was a mutant. It was a whole thing. Simon Trask runs Humanity's Last Stand. They're one of the more violent anti-mutant organizations. They still have a political presence, but mostly they're just a bunch of terrible vigilantes who like building robots to kill mutants. We saw Simon Trask very recently, of course, when we covered the Magneto miniseries. He was the primary antagonist in that. And here he is again. Yay? Hmm, I guess. I mean, he's very hateable, certainly, so there's that. So, Humanity's Last Stand here has Conover trussed and wired on a big sort of, sort of cross, actually a great big Y. Um, and the plan appears to be some kind of mind control, but it never actually comes to, to fruition, so we never find out for sure. Meanwhile in DC, Kimberly with two Ys talks to Frank about the piece of blast furnace she picked up. Apparently she shipped it to S.H.I.E.L.D. for analysis. Uh, yeah, she was just secretive about it. Because, I guess? Okay, speaking of because, I understand she was injured in the last fight, fair enough, there was a lot of, like, explodey stuff going on. Why, why is the bandage on her head mostly over the head sock thing that she's wearing? The head sock was also injured. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, well I feel bad for it, I hope it doesn't hurt too much. But what S.H.I.E.L.D. was able to determine um, was that Blast Furnace was remote-controlled. He wasn't a human or a mutant. And the part that Kimberly sent to them was manufactured by Shaw Industries and part of a shipment to an anti-mutant group. Wait a minute. Shaw Industries, despite being run by a mutant, they were responsible for building a lot of the Sentinels for Project Wide Awake. God damn it, Shaw Industries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sebastian Shaw is, is definitely uh, chaotic evil. Oh, yeah, no question. More like Maybe more like neutral evil, but pretty damn evil. Yeah, I mean, he likes the Earth because it's where he keeps his stuff, but... But before Kimberly can name that anti-mutant group, somebody teleports in. Guess who? Um, the Executioner. Nope, nope. Different teleporter. And remember, Carl told us they use different teleportation mechanisms. It is, as it turns out, Burnout. And then the rest of the alleged MLF. We've got Blast Furnace, Deadeye, and two new members, Thermal and Blind Spot. They grab Carl and with him teleport back to HQ, right where Carl wants to be. So, the final issue opens with Frank Punisher calling Ben Urich to give him a detailed recap of the story so far, which is kind of a great conceit. Ben Urich, of course, being one of the reporters for the Daily Bugle, the newspaper where Spider-Man works, and more importantly, that is run by J. Jonah Jameson. The newsroom is very, very busy because in another comic, Graydon Creed has just been assassinated. And, and Frank is calling, though, now to tip off friendly, mutant-friendly reporters. So Ben at the Daily Bugle, Trish uh, Tilby for television, so that they'll be standing by for when shit goes down. And we really do get that sense that stuff is dire right now with everything that's been going on after Onslaught, after Creed's assassination. The country is just at this boiling point. There's just so much anti-mutant hysteria, so much fear, so much hate. And J. Jonah Jameson sums it up well. Country's perched right on the edge. We're teetering. Sometimes I think we are about to fall. Wouldn't take much at this point. Oof. Too real, JJJ. So Frank gives Kimberly with two Ys a pep talk, and then she kisses him. And I want to talk about this kiss, because this, this panel is is amazing. Like, they're both grimacing intently, and it looks like their teeth are hitting each other. And the sound effect is one I don't remember ever having seen before, which is smack. S-M-E-K. Well, I've totally seen smack as a sound effect. It's for, like, a peck on the cheek, or a flick on the teeth. Since the invention of the kiss, there have only been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind. <laughs> 
But I do love this panel because, you know, Frank is just surprised. So he just is sort of looking like, what? And Kimberly, it's not a passionate thing for her. She's just grateful. She's starting to like Frank, and she's grateful that she kind of gave her a kick in the pants, as she put it, to get past her own uh, disappointment and depression and remember that she's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent and needs to be badass. It's charming, and it's awkward, and I love that it's awkward because it totally would be. Like, I feel like Kimberly with two Ys is perhaps not the world's most experienced kisser because she was too busy putting on all of her pouches and, like, learning how to talk like a badass from Nick Fury. Now, I feel like that's always what it's like to kiss Frank Punisher. So no matter how smooth you are coming in for that kiss, by the time you get there, you're just sort of, wait, what? All teeth. All teeth, all smack. All smack. All the time. Does that smack go all the way down? War Journal 2, Entry 47. Smack. Back at fake MLF headquarters, uh, Simon Trash and or Simon Trask, realizes that Creed's assassination has basically made all their work redundant, so from now on, his fake mutants can just do random terrorist stuff. Easy peasy, they don't have to target anyone even, really. They can just go around being assholes. It fascinates me that this series takes place around Graydon Creed's assassination, like the big event occurring in the X-Books at the time, not before or after. Because all the characters have this big plan, the bad guys especially, leading up to the last issue, and it just all stops being relevant right at the end. It makes the story messy, but I also kind of like it. Like, it makes it clear just how much Graydon Creed's assassination has upended everything, everyone's plans, everyone's assumptions. It may not be good for this story in particular, but I think it's really good in just establishing what a big deal that is in the Marvel Universe right now. Absolutely, yeah. So... To simplify things, Trask sends Burnout off to kill Carl and leaves Conover hanging on his big Y. Fortunately for Carl, Burnout's speedy drugs are wearing off, so Carl is able to push her into a wall and then teleport himself away. And because she's failed to keep track of him, Trask won't give her any more drugs, and she spontaneously combusts. Whoa. Don't do drugs, kids. Apparently. So... Frank, Kimberly with two Ys, and Carl, now as Carl the Executioner, storm the castle. Kimberly with two Ys is doing her best to talk like Nick Fury would, which sounds a bit like... Shields here and taken over, so one side. And count yourself lucky we're using mercy slugs this time. I had no strong feelings about Kimberly Taylor up until this point. Mainly, I loved that she wore such a very 90s costume and flipped around and smacked Frank. But suddenly, she is so goddamn charming, and I love her, and I retroactively have loved her since the first panel she appeared in. Like, the characters in this story are just so goofy and endearing, even though there's all this horrible shit going on. I don't know. It's fun. And facing them, we've got a whole bunch of other MLF folks, including a third Deadeye. Don't know how you got in, but you can die right here. To which Frank responds, I could die anywhere, but I've got work to do first. Carl manages to rescue William Conover from the big capital Y, but his teleporter shorts out, and he doesn't know how he's going to get back in to teleport the Punisher out. Trask shoots Blindspot because she's worried about her family. Because that's how you show that you're a really, really villainous villain, is you you shoot one of your hench people. Damn it, Trask did that to that one general guy in the Magneto miniseries. Trask, if you keep just shooting all of your allies, you're gonna run out. It's okay, because then Frank Punisher punches him right in his stupid face. I feel pretty good about that. Trask says, well, he's already lost, he's just gonna blow the whole place up and kill all the humans working there and make it look like mutants did it. Frank disagrees. You're not going to be a martyr, Trask. You're going to be a joke. Your little scheme is going to be plastered all over the media. You're probably going to generate more sympathy for mutants than you did hate. You're going to live. You're going to be humiliated. That's why I'm letting you live. That's your punishment. Unfortunately, it doesn't go that way because Trask presses a button and blows up the whole damn building with himself and the Punisher inside. 
Carl the Executioner is able to rescue Kimberly with two wives, but we close with Trish Tilby reporting that Frank Punisher and Simon Trask probably both died in the explosion. Spoiler, they're both okay. They'll be back. There's a next issue of The Punisher, and Simon Trash will be even worse the next time he shows up. So there we go. There is a Punisher story that kind of might as well be an X-Men story, right? Kind of. It's nice seeing non-mutant characters and stories that care about the mutant situation, given how central it is to national politics in the Marvel Universe at this point. Seriously. And I'm sure some of that was sales. I mean, the X-Line had been selling better than most other books for a while, as much as Marvel was starting to get into a place of financial peril. That's why we would see characters like Cloak and Dagger suddenly be revealed to really be mutants in The Mutant Misadventures of Cloak and Dagger. Like, they retitled the book to that. They put the word mutant right in the title. Were they mutants or just their misadventures? Uh, ambiguous. It's kind of like a Quicksilver Scarlet Witch thing. It's gone back and forth so many times that nobody knows. But I agree. It's fun, and it's certainly fun as an X-Men podcast, looking at this decidedly non-X-Men book that features... The Executioner, an X-Men villain slash anti-hero. William Conover. The Executioner a... is no one's anti-hero, Miles. Eh, it depends on who you ask. Uh, we have William Conover, who has only ever been an X-Men character. Uh, he cares about mutants. He's got a lot of tragedy involving the brood, as much as that doesn't come up. He, he grins a lot. I thought he was possessed or something at the beginning of the story, because I remembered the brood stuff, and he always has exactly the same grin on his face in, like, the first seven or so panels he's in. Hey, listen, Tom Lyle is a Punisher artist. He doesn't get to draw a lot of smiles. They're hard. And then we also have Simon Trask, one of the infamous Trask family from X-Men, creating a false flag mutant liberation front. It's just X-Men stuff, X-Men stuff, X-Men stuff. With the exception of Kimberly with two Ys, who appears in this series and, as far as I know, nowhere else, and, of course, Frank Punisher. Ah, Frank. Will we ever talk about you again in this podcast? No idea, but I'm glad we got to this time. I thought this was a really fun story. I thought the creative team handled it really well. Yeah, yeah, I feel like this is... This is the kind of Punisher story I tend to enjoy. Like, there there are two types of Punisher stories that I tend to like, and one is him dealing with the legacy he's accidentally created, and the other is intensely fish out of water. And this is very, very much that. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Anthony asks via email, How do you decide which items you are going to explain as it develops naturally through continuity, and which you will reveal entirely the moment it comes up? So, we are looking mostly at older material, and we are very specifically a podcast that's about explanation and analysis. Uh, We are not just here to retell the X-Men. So we basically bring up and explain things as they come up and as they feel relevant to us. Um, We don't tend to save a lot of things or spoiler-worn things because, again, we're looking at at books, at comics that are at this point more than 20 years old. The main exception there, of course, is when we bring up something more recent that turns out to be relevant. Like, for a long time, we were really dancing around all of the revelations in House of X and Powers of Ten. Now that those are a few years old, we feel more okay talking about them. But as for the big stuff, like... I don't know, a lot of it I think adds neat context if you know about them early. Like, knowing that Monet is actually her two sisters wearing a Monet-shaped trench coat and the real Monet is stuck in Penance's body, or that Joseph is actually a clone of Magneto, that adds an entire other angle every time those characters appear. So I kind of feel like it really helps to know that, unless you're especially spoiler-phobic. And if you are, this probably isn't the podcast for you. So an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I know she has oodles of subtext, but do you know if magic has ever been made explicitly queer on page? I seem to remember her, or possibly an alternate version of her, having a female love interest in some one-shot or series somewhere, but all of my searching draws a blank. Your memory is indeed correct. But first, to look at it more broadly, yeah, I mean, from very early on, that subtext was there. Ilyana was Kitty's best friend, they were roommates— And that was in a very Claremonty way, you know, a very gal pals, wink, wink kind of way. It wasn't particularly prurient, like it was handled, I think, in a a respectful fashion. Uh, But that really seemed to be part of the character's relationship. And as the character went on, we would see more and more of that again, but always subtextually. Until 
Earth 15513, which was the reality in the Secret Wars Siege miniseries, uh, one of the many realities in the 2015 Secret Wars mega event in Marvel. And in that one, which was based around a bunch of characters uh, on a big wall trying to keep the zombies out of the rest of the world, we met an Ilyana who was in a relationship with Leah, who herself is an alternate aspect of the Norse goddess Hela, and they were very definitely, very specifically, very clearly girlfriends. So given that characters tend to be in a similar position sexuality-wise from one universe to another, we can assume that the 616 Ilyana is not just all subtext for her, but alas, subtext is all we have seen with the main version of the character. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and today the microphone goes to... Oh, you're, you're layering some concepts here. It goes to Sexy Carl the Executioner. Ugh, oh, Carl, what have you done now, you nut? Scheduled a date with Lodro Rinsler tonight as FBI agent Carl Denty... And another date with Tyler Weedmeyer at the same time as my alter ego, the Executioner. Okay, okay. You've got this, Carl. You've got this. Ahem. Lodro, right? I recognize the single white rose you were holding at the restaurant table, just like you said in our pre-first date correspondence. And I am so glad we met through that singles video cassette dating service. Uh, okay, don't go anywhere. Tyler Weedmeyer, it is I, the Executioner, Judge, Jury, and, well, you know, thank you for meeting me for our date tonight. I don't normally spend time in superhuman anti-hero AOL chat rooms, but I am glad I did. Together, we can bring justice to this city, and perhaps, if we survive, see where the night takes us. But I'll... I'll be right back. I am so sorry. Uh, Lodro, sorry to keep you waiting. I... What do you mean, what am I wearing? Ah, jeez. Think, Carl. Think. This armor is... I just wanted to show you that I could protect you. You know, if we were in a relationship. Not that I'm assuming anything. I mean, it's just our first date, and... I'll be right back. Tyler, I am grateful for your patience, and where is my helmet? Uh, I, I just trust you so much, even after first meeting you, that I wanted to unmask and show you my real face, and I... Lodro, this, this isn't what it looks like. And Tyler, Lodro is just, I mean, you and I, he and I, I, I have to go. Ah, uh, Carl, you've done it again. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it's back to X-Men proper. Where the second-string villains are out in force. (laughs) 